This Supreme Court audio has been brought to you by a grant from the National Science Foundation to the Oye Project, www.oyez.org. We'll hear argument next in number 9762, Thomas Freitag versus Commissioner of Internal Revenue. Sullivan, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is a tax case with implications for up to 3,000 taxpayers and a billion and a half in alleged tax deficiencies, and it involves one of the longest trials below in the tax court's history. Fourteen weeks of evidence, complex financial testimony, 9,000 pages of transcript, 3,000-plus exhibits. But we won't tax you with any of the substantive detail of that tax case, uh, because the sole issue before this Court is the authority of the special trial judge who presided over and we assert effectively decided the case. Uh, We will raise issues both of the statutory and the constitutional authority of the special trial judge, But I'd like to start, of course, with the statutory claim, because should you reverse this case agreeing with our statutory claim, you would avoid the need uh, to reach the constitutional question. Now, the statutory framework uh, that governs the special trial judges is straightforward. It's set forth in Internal Revenue Code 7443A, which is reprinted at A100 in the cert petition, uh, and it divides the work of the tax court potentially between the regularly appointed tax court judges, who now number 19, and special trial judges, whom Congress has authorized the chief judge of the trial court to appoint and to remove at his pleasure. Now, special trial judges are governed by 7443A, B, and C. And to make it simple, they have two kinds of function. The special trial judges may hear and decide certain specified kinds of tax cases, specifically specified declaratory judgment claims and small tax claims involving amounts under $10,000. They may hear and decide those cases set forth in 7443A, B1 to 3. B4, the sole provision at issue in this case, is the catch-all provision that says they may also hear but not decide any other proceeding. Now let me try to clarify the points of agreement and disagreement between petitioners and the government with respect to the statutory claim. Petitioners and the government agree completely that Congress did not authorize special trial judges to decide B4 cases. B4, coupled with C, precludes decision by a special trial judge. Our difference with the government, the heart of our statutory claim, well, it, it is precludes, that in this case it he did decide. It precludes making the decision of the court. That's correct. 
If, I'm not sure if it precludes making the decision, uh, which is subject to the review of the court uh, in, a de, in a de novo proceeding. That may be right, Justice Kennedy. Uh, t- that is not what the tax court rules permit. So our argument is that the tax court rules here are in violation of the statute, even if the statute is properly read the way you describe, to permit reports by special trial judges subject to de novo review. Our key uh, argument here under the statute is not only that the conduct of the judge below here amounted effectively to a decision in the case, but that the tax court rules ensure that special trial judges will effectively decide before cases. Uh, and I'd like to point out precisely how we read the rules to do just that. Uh, the tax court rules, the key rule here is Rule 183. And we've reprinted that, if you wish to look at it, in the cert petition appendix at A91. Now, the key uh, features of that rule that we argue preclude what Justice Kennedy said might be permissible within the statute uh, are Rules B uh, and C. Specifically, I'd like to start with C, if I might, on page A92. Tax Court Rule 183C which is the governing rule in B4 cases, and what's the rule what page of the, uh, This is uh, Sir Petition Appendix A92. A92, thank you. Specifically, Mr. Chief Justice, the last sentence of that paragraph C on A92. You'll see in that sentence that uh, the uh, action on the report, now we're talking about what the regular tax court judge to whom the case returns after the special trial judge has finished a report, If you look at 183C, last sentence, it provides, last clause of the sentence, that the findings of fact recommended by the special trial judge shall be presumed to be correct. In other words, the tax court's own rules, Justice Kennedy, in answer to your question, preclude de novo review of the kind that is typical in other settings in the federal government where adjunct adjudicators are operating under the real, not merely formal, supervision uh, of a regular judge. To connect up to Justice O'Connor's question earlier, uh, had uh, magistrates' decisions in suppression hearings not been reviewable de novo, uh, they would not be in compliance with the statute, the Magistrates Act, uh, and may raise other constitutional questions. But here, de novo review of the kind that is typical under the Magistrates Act is actually precluded when by you the say, When you rule. say de novo review, Ms. Son, you mean a complete uh, a- examination of, of every question of fact uh, without any presumption of correctness at all? Not necessarily, uh, to Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, we at least mean, in order for the statute to be complied with, that the regular tax court judge to whom the report of the special trial judge returns must at least demonstrate, as he, as, as the district court must over in the magistrate setting, that he has looked at or engaged with, looked beneath the findings of the special trial judge to the record and the arguments of the parties below. Well, you, you mean demonstrate by some sort of a written opinion of his own? Not necessarily, but at least by the operation of a general rule that provides that this engagement will take place. That's the kind of rule that is in place in the Magistrates Act. Well, but you, you're, you're saying, as I understand it, that this particular tax court rule, which we're talking about here, ensures that the special judges 
will end up deciding the cases. Now, I, I don't read the rule that way. It seems to me that you could say that if you're talking about a factual finding being presumed to be correct, you could apply the clearly erroneous standard. That's right. And the only, di- the only circuit court to interpret the statute has read it to require clearly erroneous review. But the, the problem with the rule goes further than the, it, it, its, its application of the clearly erroneous standard, if you wish to read it that way. Notice that in Rule 183, uh, there is no opportunity for the parties to see or to object to the special trial judge's report between the time it is written and filed with the regular tax court judge and the tax court judge's issuance of the opinion. The first, um, yes, did just the, um, did the uh, petitioners here agree to the assignment to the special trial judge? Yeah. There are uh, uh, three key moments in the case, Justice O'Connor, in answer to that question. Uh, When petitioners came to the tax court back in 1982, they uh, sought uh, adjudication of their alleged deficiencies before a regular tax court judge, and they were so assigned to regular tax court Judge Wilbur, presidential appointee. Judge Wilbur began to try the case, tried the case from June 1984 through November 1985 when he suddenly became ill. There was no pre-trial consent to the special trial judge presiding in the case. First key moment in the case is in November 1985, after this illness sets in, when in mid-trial, the uh, uh, petitioners consented to have a special trial judge, special trial judge Powell, sit as an evidentiary referee while the proceedings were videotaped so that Judge Wilbur could still make the decision in the first instance based on the videotape. Time goes by, December 1985 to June 1986. Special Trial Judge Powell does conduct the proceedings. Uh, And then after the trial is complete, after all the evidence is taken, in July 1986 for the first time, is it proposed by Chief Judge Sterrett of the tax court that uh, Judge Powell, Special Trial Judge Powell, actually filed the report under the provisions of B4. So there was a mid-trial consent to his continuing the case as an evidentiary referee, and there was a post-trial consent to his filing the report. So your answer is yes, there was consent. Yes. If if that's the situation, I'm not sure that we would uh, reach any problem with the rule. Justice O'Connor, let me be clear on a distinction between this case, the Freitag case, and the Parrott's case, which you just heard. In Parrott's, there was an issue of waiver of the statutory claim. There is before this Court no issue of waiver of the statutory claim. The Fifth Circuit held that the statutory claim was not waived by the petitioner's mid-trial consent to evidentiary refereeing or post-trial consent to the filing of the report. The government didn't cross-petition and has raised no claim of statutory waiver here. So in contrast to Parrott's, I believe the statutory question really must be reached. Uh, As to the question of whether the constitutional claim can be waived, we argue uh, uh, quite simply that it's a structural claim of precisely the kind that you speaking for the court, Justice O'Connor and CFTC versus Shore, said waiver should not affect. But just to return to the uh, third key moment in the trial, if I could, it's October 21st, 1987, when we argue that the key decision effectively by the special trial judge is realized. To answer your question, Mr. Chief Justice, October 21st, 1987, is the day on which the chief judge of the tax court, Judge Sterrett, does two things on the same day. 
Number one, he issues an order reassigning the case to himself from Special Trial Judge Powell, who sometime in the preceding four months had filed a report with the Chief Judge of the Tax Court. Second, on the same day, he adopts and he states in an opinion that he agrees with and adopts the findings of the Special Trial Judge. You're going to tell us now what's wrong with that. Yes, Justice Blackman. The uh, problem with that two-sentence a, 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 a signature plus two sentences added to the 55 pages of the special trial judge's report uh, is that there is no basis to suppose there was meaningful review or therefore meaningful supervision that would enable us to accept this as the decision of the tax court rather than of the special trial judge himself. What, a, what if it were five days? Justice Blackman, as I've said before, we rely on the presumption of administrative regularity under the tax court's own rules, even if you should indulge the government's uh, uh, speculation that it might have been five days. I would add the government does not disagree with us that a rubber stamp would be ultra vires against statutory authority. The government simply tries to suggest that perhaps it was five days or two days or 14 days. Who knows? The parties can't know because they have no opportunity to see the special trial judge's report or know when it is filed or object to it, unlike the procedure in the magistrate's court. But supposing it was five days, Justice Blackman, we argue that the tax court's rules, which we should presume were followed here, preclude de novo review, uh, uh, permit at most clearly erroneous review, and because there is no opportunity for the parties to object, do not put the regular tax court judge to any obligation to look beneath the special trial judge's own findings. Well, that, that's the very reason why I, w- I wonder why you're making such a big point out of the same day. Ah, yes. Well, it's an alternative argument, Justice Blackman. We do think that there is nothing, absolutely nothing in this record to suggest that the regular tax court judge actually reviewed the case. In fact, October 21st, 1987 is the day he reassigned it to himself. And if you look at Tax Court Rule 182B, if I could turn you back to A91 for a moment. A91, Tax Court Rule 183B, you will see the appropriate sequence uh, for the reassignment of a case from a special trial judge to a regular court judge. Uh, the special trial judge shall submit his report to the chief judge, and the chief judge will assign... From page A91. Page A91, Rule 183, paragraph B, final two lines of the rule. Uh, final three lines. The special trial judge submits a report, and at that point the chief judge will assign the case to a division of the court. Turning over to the next side of the page, Rule C. Rule C says the division to which the case is assigned may adopt, modify, reject, or, as happened here, simply adopt verbatim, completely, the rulings of the special trial judge. If we presume administrative regularity, Justice Blackman, there can be no inference other than that. October 21st... Judge Sterrick was chief judge. He knew what was going on. He must have known what was going on. Actually, Your Honor... I'd like to ask him. He's present in the courtroom, but I'm not going to ask him. like the line in Annie Hall where Woody Allen says, I just happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. Uh, uh, I won't ask him, Your Honor. What, what I would like to, to, to point out is not that we, we cast no aspersion on Chief 
Judge Starrett personally in the least. What we are doing here in the absence of any evidence that there was meaningful review is arguing about what we should presume from the regular procedures of the tax court that Chief Judge Starrett can be expected faithfully to adhere to. And the published rules of the tax court say you reassign the special trial judge's case to a judge of the tax court, and then that judge reviews it. Ms. Sullivan. Yes, Justice. Would you be satisfied with the usual expressions that I think you and I have seen of an appellate court judge who says, I have reviewed all of the objections of appellate and find no merit in any of them? Is that what you want? I believe we might accept that, Justice Marshall, but the fact is, under the tax court's rules, the chief judge of the tax court could not review all the objections of the parties to the special trial judge's findings because they never got to see them. Up until 1984, the tax court had provided by its rules for exceptions by the parties to the special trial judge's report and an opportunity to try to get the tax court judge to reject some of those findings. That opportunity was eliminated in 1984. One more fact in answer to your question, Justice Blackmun. In fact, it was not clear that Chief Judge Starrett would be the judge of the regularly appointed tax court judges to whom the case was reassigned. The stipulation, the agreement by the parties to which Justice O'Connor referred earlier, was to permit Judge Powell, the special trial judge, to make a report of his findings for reassignment either to Chief Judge Starrett or to Judge Wilbur, the judge who had become ill and whom, even up until October 21, 1987, the parties believed might still be the one to get the case. So you cannot presume on this record that Chief Judge Starrett would have paid attention to the case specifically at any moment up until he reassigned the case to himself October 21, 1987, the day he also issued his appeal. Ms. Sullivan, I wonder if questions of these rather detailed facts are fairly subsumed under the questions presented in your petition for writ of certiorari. Mr. Chief Justice, we think clearly so and in haec verba. Our first question was not, contrary to the government's suggestion, does the statute permit assignment of special trial judges only to preside at before cases? Our question presented in the one accepted, granted the review in the court, was, as you can see from the first page of our cert petition, are complex tax cases allowed to be assigned to a special trial judge for trial and effective resolution? In fact, effective resolution is the heart of our statutory claim, and it was the ground on which the Fifth Circuit decided below. The Fifth Circuit decided there was no rubber stamp, and hence we were out of luck. We claim that regardless of whether you call it a rubber stamp or not, the tax court's rules ensure that, as happened in this case, the usual opportunities for supervision and control that one would expect in an adjunct adjudicatory scheme like this are missing. In other words, just to put our point succinctly, Congress did not and could not have intended special trial judges in large, complex, multi-party, multimillion-dollar tax shelter cases, alleged tax shelter cases such as this one. Congress did not and could not have intended such cases to be, in effect, decided by the autonomous actions of a special trial judge. Now, if there are no further questions on the statutory claim, I'll move on to our constitutional argument. As I mentioned at the outset, should you agree with us that the statute was violated by the tax court's rules and conduct in this case, 
you would then nonetheless uh, need to reach, uh, sorry, should, if you agree with us on the statute, you need not reach our constitutional claim. But should you disagree with us on the statute, let me state as simply as I can what the key points of difference and agreement are between us and the government. Now, of course, we deal here with one of the plainest texts in the Constitution, the Appointments Clause that permits Congress to delegate the power to appoint inferior officers to the President alone, not at issue here, to the heads of departments or the courts of law. Now, if I could dispose quickly of the employee point and the court of law point, uh, I will get to the key point of difference between us and the government, which is whether or not the tax court may possibly be considered an executive department for appointments clause purposes, and thus its chief judge, the head of that department. I think the employee point and the court of law argument can be dismissed uh, quickly. Uh, it is beyond serious dispute that special trial judges are inferior officers of the United States. They are far more than mere ministerial uh, aides. They, uh, uh, and every court to have decided this question has agreed. In terms of this court's own definition, there can be no doubt that they satisfy every formal definition of what an officer is. They hold office created by Congress. Well, have Justice we O'Connor. really gone into any depth in defining uh, who is an inferior officer and who's an employee? The cases that we cite in our brief of Germain from the late 19th century and Burnap, a Justice Brandeis opinion from the early 20th, uh, are uh, perhaps helpful in resolving the question of who is and isn't an officer. But we would rely more heavily on your statement more recently in Buckley that the function, the functional test for an officer is whether he exercises significant authority uh, pursuant to the law. Now, there can be no doubt that a special trial judge, whether presiding or, as we argue he did here, deciding the case, is exercising significant authority. In fact, we would argue that there's uh, a parallel here between special trial judges and magistrates, except that magistrates are more effectively supervised under the practice of uh, the Article III courts uh, by their uh, uh, our, our, uh, the district courts under Article Three, but uh, in any event, uh, but your argument here is at yes, cross purposes with your argument, er- your argument earlier. I mean, well, the, the, the more the more authority the uh, uh, the special judge has the uh, uh, to decide the case conclusively, uh, the, the less likely he's just an employee, and, and vice versa. That, that, that's that, that's right, Your Honor. It's it's more clear, but we absolutely disagree that the officer is demoted to employee when he is merely presiding. We think that's inappropriate. He, a magistrate does not cease to be an officer and become a mere employee when he is carrying out pretrial hearings as opposed to disposing of a case. Uh, and just as a lawyer is still a lawyer, protected by the attorney-client privilege if she's at the Xerox machine, just as the president is still the president when he's walking the dog on the White House lawn, so a special trial judge cannot become an employee just because he is performing a task that could have been performed by an employee. So we would respectfully, say, respectfully suggest that even if there were effective supervision consistent with the statute, the special trial judge would still be an officer, and thus uh, even in presiding in B4 cases would raise the constitutional issue. But in any case, if you agree as, uh, 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 that the special trial judge is an inferior officer, uh, we agree fully with the government that the tax court cannot be considered 
a court of law for purposes of the appointments clause. How about the, uh, all these other courts that uh, Mr. Griswold describes in his brief? The claims court, the territorial courts, the land courts, the District of Columbia courts. Those are all executive departments. Territorial courts, we think, are uh, unreached by any appointments clause constraint because w when Congress exercises its territorial authority, it is acting in effect as a state. Separation of powers concerns don't apply. As to non-territorial Article I courts... What, what we, is the District of Columbia, by the way, in your particular dichotomy? I, I'd have to put it over with the territorial courts for purposes of the last remark. I see. Uh, so they... And, and, and again, tell me again, you say they are a department there? Need not reach the question whether they're well, a department because... I know, but I'm curious about what your answer would be, even if we don't have to reach it. At the, at not a department if you had to reach it. Not a department if you had to reach so it. So they are courts of law, within the meaning uh, of the appointments. Not courts of law or at executive departments. For appointments clause what purposes, are they? they are out. Uh, you need not decide that. Well, you need not decide any question no, about the fourth branch of government. Assume we want to. <laughs> Assuming you wish to issue, uh, I can't assume you would wish to issue an advisory opinion on the status of the fourth branch. Uh, let me just say that the government has argued that there are only three branches. Everything in the federal government has to fall within yeah, those. But what do you, what do you argue? What, what we, do you argue as to the status of the courts that Justice Stevens mentioned? We argue that they are not uh, empowered under the appointments clause to appoint officers, because they are, you need not reach it, but if you had to. Well, they were empowered by statute law, to appoint clerks who are inferior officers. Maybe employees. You've never held their inferior officers. Well, maybe let's employees. assume for a moment they were inferior officers. The clerks of the court are pretty important. They're officers of the court. Our clerk is an officer of the court. Uh, now, if they are inferior officers, you would say, and the courts exercise judicial power, beginning with the Justice Marshall's opinion in the very early case, why are they not courts of law? And if they're not, if they're courts of law, why is not this tax court also a court of law? They are not courts of law because they lack the independence guaranteed Article Three courts through the salary and tenure clauses of Article Three. Courts of law in Article Two must mean courts of law in Article Three. Do they exercise the judicial power or a they part may of it? do so? They may exercise the judicial power of the United States, but the appointment power does not follow the judicial power wherever it may go. We're asking what is a court, and you're saying it exercises part of the, the judicial power, and Congress calls, it's a, calls it a court. We call it a court in Palmore, and you say it's not a court? Absolutely, for appointment clause purposes, because remember, the purposes of the appointments clause, on which we and the government agree, the purpose of the appointment clause you is You and the government exist. now agree. Now agree, after many changes of heart on the government's part, which is why you cannot rely on the executive branch to preserve and champion the appointments clause in this case. But on, that's uh, why I made the, the appointment point. was if the, with the courts of law, then. I think on, on courts of law. To be, uh, courts of law and heads of department make sense if the goal of the Constitution is to distance from Congress the awesome power to appoint executive officers. What distances an entity from Congress, either the independence that you and the other Article III judges enjoy through the tenure and salary clauses with Article I courts lack, or protection through the political might and muscle of the President. The tax court, and it's like in this respect that courts Justice Stevens mentions, lacks, uniquely lacks both those attributes. They are not independent like Article III judges. They are not executive or uh, controlled or supervised or protected 
by the President. Well, Ms. Sullivan, is it your position that in the case of a territorial court, Congress could provide that the Speaker of the House would appoint the judges? That might raise incon- — uh, cer- certainly not. That uh, — that uh, uh, it, well, it would not raise an Article Three problem. It might be in Congress. And the key point is that uh, — The Appointments uh, Clause just wouldn't apply in your The Appointments view. Clause would not apply. Well, what's, what's our closest case to The support? answer to your question is yes, that our argument would permit Congress to make that and what's, what's hiring the decision. Case it's not an appointment. What's the closest case from this Court that supports that position, do you think? Uh, there's n- no case I know of that supports that position, so long as Congress is not appointing itself officers of the United States, as you pr- uh, ruled uh, it couldn't do in Buckley, uh, an appointments clause issue is not presented. If I could just uh, conclude, Your Honor, and save the rest of my time for rebuttal, if there's any left. Let me ask you one other question. Yes, if, they're, if they're not courts of law and they're an executive department, as you agree with the government, why then isn't the chief judge the head of the department? Not a department. Can't be a department. No executive functions whatsoever. Uh, What are they? They're not an apartment and they're not a court of law. It may be that Congress should not, in the government's view, perhaps in other people's view, perhaps Congress should not create entities that are outside the tripartite structure of government, but it has. What is your view as to the status of these tribunals? Congress moved it out of the executive branch in 1969. It cannot be in the executive branch. Congress did not put it in the judicial branch. It is not in the legislative branch. It is neither executive, judicial, nor legislative. Last point, we don't necessarily... That's like the FCC and the independent regulatory agencies who are considered... Who are considered uh Heads of uh, heads of departments. They might well be. Key point in our case is that the legislative courts are not the same thing as the independent agencies. The government's main argument is not that the Constitution has been complied with here. It's that if the Constitution were complied with, the government says the FCC, the FTC, the SEC might lose their appointment power. Well, that's just not so. The legislative court, known as the tax court, is distinct from the agencies in very significant ways. Its budget goes straight to Congress, not through OMB. It elects its own chief judge. The president handpicks the chairman of the agencies and can be expected to control them. We respectfully request that the case be reversed and remanded for a new trial before the regular tax court judge. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Roberts, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Petitioners claim that the appointment of a special trial judge to hear and report on their cases, which is authorized by the plain language, Section 7443A, B4, is unconstitutional under the Appointments Clause. There are two reasons that this Court should not reach that claim. First, petitioners waived it by consenting to have their cases heard by a special trial judge in the tax court and waiting to raise their claim until it reached the Court of Appeals which quite properly declined to consider it. Second, the special trial judge assigned to hear and report on petitioners' cases under subsection B4 perform duties that may be performed by an employee and do not require an officer of the United States. The appointments clause is therefore not implicated on the facts of this case. First, the waiver point. When the regular tax court judge became too ill to continue hearing petitioners' cases, The Chief Judge did not simply reassign the cases to a special trial judge. He issued an order proposing such a reassignment and inviting any objections. Hearings were held to consider objections. Petitioners, represented by counsel, discussed with the Chief Judge the issue of reassignment and settled upon terms under which they would consent to the reassignment. One taxpayer did object and his case was severed. 
Petitioners never did object, and even after the tax court decision, in two motions to reconsider, never once raised the Appointments Clause problem. Now, the reasons for a waiver rule, I think we've seen this morning. Um, Mr. Roberts, I guess the first uh, part of the argument here today went to the statutory argument, and as to that, it was asserted that there was no waiver of the argument that the tax court's own rules um, are improper. Your Honor, the petitioners did waive that argument as well in the sense that they did not raise it before the tax court. The, the Fifth Circuit, however, went on to consider it, and therefore under the rule that matters, although not raised, are actually decided, may be reviewed. We agree that that question may be reviewed. We think so that, that question is before us, and do you, are, are you going to address yourself to uh, Part C of the rule that says the findings of fact recommended by the special trial judge shall be presumed to be correct? I'll do so right now, but before I do so, I would point out that that issue is a very good indication of why we have a waiver rule. Uh, the question of how the tax court interprets its Rule 183 uh, how a regular tax court judge handles the report of a special trial judge when he, when he gets it are all matters that the tax court could have definitively resolved if it had been asked to do so. Instead, because of petitioner's default, this court is asked to decide that those questions of technical tax court procedure in the first instance and in a decisional vacuum. Now, at, at what point would it have done so on a petition for rehearing after Judge Stair's decision? Well, pe petitioners today argue that Rule 183C prevents the tax court from exercising de novo review. Now, if that's the case, they should have known that when the chief judge proposed to reassign their case to a special trial judge for hearing and report under Rule 183C. The rule said the same thing then as it does today. And yet they raised no objection at that point. That was their opportunity to do so. They had an opportunity to do so also after the decision in two different motions to rehear. Mr. Robbins, before you get into the substance, what about the argument that you didn't cross-appeal? That the, that the Court of Appeals did decide the waiver point, decided against you, and you didn't cross-appeal? It decided two, two waiver points. One, the, the issue they permitted petitioners to raise in the Court of Appeals was whether or not this type of a case can be assigned under subsection B-4 to a special trial judge for hearing and report. Petitioner's argument was B-4, which says any other proceeding, actually means any other small proceeding like, like the ones in B-1, B-1 through 3. They permitted them to raise that issue. Uh, so that one is not, not waived. But the Fifth Circuit did not decide petitioner's constitutional claim. They uh, quite properly decided that that was waived. Now, uh, to return Justice O'Connor to Rule 183, and in particular C, uh, there is a last sentence to the rule, but there's a first sentence as well. The first sentence describes what a regular tax court judge is to do uh, with the special trial judge's report. It says he may adopt it, he may modify it, reject it, call for briefing, call for oral argument, may receive additional evidence, or may recommit the report uh, with instructions. That, in our mind, indicates, as Section 7443AC makes clear, that it is the regular tax court judge and not the special trial judge who decides the case. That reading is confirmed by the fact that the interaction between the regular tax court judge and the special trial judge is a matter that is purely internal to the tax court. 
Uh, it, petitioners object that uh, they didn't have an opportunity to review the report before it went to the regular judge. They didn't have... Mr. Roberts, surely what, what matters is what he must do, not what he may do. Is, 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 is it enough to say that he may decide the case himself if he wants to? He is, it seems to me to support your, your position, you have to say he must. He, he must. And, and, and all this is, all the sentence you, you rely on just says he may. No, section Whereas this, the last sentence says, due regard shall be given to the circumstance that the special trial judge had the opportunity to evaluate, blah, 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 and the findings of fact shall be presumed to be correct. The, the sentence that I read says may because it lists a number of things, including some that are inconsistent that he may do. He may adopt it, he may reject it. The statute, after setting forth the categories of cases that the chief judge may authorize a special trial judge to hear, says that in the first three categories, the chief the court may also authorize the special trial judge to decide the case. Well, he Mr. May- Roberts, just if, if we thought that the last sentence of that rule required the uh, tax court division to which the report is assigned to give the special trial judges recommendations um, a presumption that they are correct. A clearly erroneous standard of review. Now, if that if that is our reading of it, is that consistent with the authorizing statute? Well, with respect, there are two different points in your question. There is a difference, I believe, between a presumption of correctness and a clearly erroneous standard of review. Take them both. Is, are, are they consistent with the statute? The, the first is. Uh, the rule says that the findings of fact shall be presumed to be correct. The rule does not say uh, what it takes to overcome the presumption. The tax court has. In its Rosenbaum decision, it's indicated both by what it says, said, which is that the language in no way impairs or dilute their responsibility, and by what it did, which was a reweighing of the evidence uh, in the case and in many instances reaching a conclusion different from that of the uh, special trial judge. The tax court has indicated that it reads its rule as proposing, as the, the, the presumption is in effect, as we've said, a starting point uh, from which the, tax, the regular tax court judge must consider the proposed findings of, of the parties. Now, as I've indicated, given the fact that the interaction between the regular tax court judge and the special the trial judge... The proposed findings of the parties submitted to the special trial judge? Yes, Your Honor. Um, and... Robinson. and, and they're, of course, available uh, and go on to the, the regular judge when he's reviewing. At a minimum, Mr. Roberts, uh, shall be presumed to be correct means that if everything else is in equipoise, what the, uh, what the special trial judge found prevails. Doesn't it mean that at a minimum? If it's, if it's a straight tie, then, then that's, what it, that's what it means, right. yes. Is, is that consistent with the statute? Yes, I believe it is, because I don't think that type of review is abdicating responsibility in any way uh, for decision. Now, of course, it has to also take into account... In effect, decides the case, then. Well... If it, what he says goes, if everything well, no, else... No, it also has to be evaluated with, the, with the, the burden of proof. One of the parties bears the burden of proof, and if that party has not carried its burden of proof, if it is an exact tie, then the other party would, would prevail. Suppose now, the tax court judge said, in exercising my determination whether to reject or accept this, depart, uh, this report, I must keep in mind uh, that it is presumed to be correct. Is that a proper interpretation of the regulation? 
Certainly. It's just, it's just re-echoing the rule. The question is, what does so the that presumption... He, so that he must presume it correct before he exercises his discretion to reject it or adopt it. The question is, what weight is given the presumption? And that's not a uniform uh, rule. Presume correct doesn't necessarily mean the same thing across the board. It's a tax court rule. The place you look to find out what the presumption means is the rulings of the tax court. And that court has indicated that the presumption is not, certainly not, the clearly erroneous standard, uh, uh, but more in the nature, as I said, of a starting point. And again, to get back to the relationship between the regular tax court judge and the special trial judge, it is internal. Petitioners object. We never had a chance to review the report. We never had a chance to object to it. And they say that's very different than the procedure that applies with respect to magistrates. That's our point exactly. A magistrate decides a matter that he is, he is hearing, a civil trial, and therefore the parties need to be able to review that decision to determine if they want to object and seek further review. Special trial judge under subsection B4 decides nothing, and therefore it's uh, perfectly appropriate that there is no opportunity for review and objection, uh, just as there, there is not uh, an opportunity for a party to review and object to a law clerk's draft that is, that is submitted to a judge. Law clerk acts as an aide and an assistant to the judge, just as the special trial judge does to a regular judge under this provision. Of course, you don't submit proposed findings to a law clerk. Well, uh, I suppose in the district court it's not unusual to have proposed findings submitted to a court, and then a law clerk could could, uh, draft those and submit it to his judge, who, of course, has the responsibility for decision. And what does it mean when due regard shall be given to the circumstance that the special trial judge had the opportunity to evaluate the credibility of witnesses? Well, it what, means what does it mean to give due regard to that? Doesn't that mean that you, you defer to, uh, to the finding of fact? If it no. doesn't mean that, it's meaningless, isn't it? Well, it may well be meaningless in the sense that the regular judge always retains the responsibility to decide the case. Due regard means due regard. And what the tax court has said, as it understands its rule, that this in no way dilutes or impairs their responsibility to decide the case. I see. You think due regard means no regard. No, I think due regard means due regard. And and in the case of uh, uh, credibility determination, the uh, uh, regular tax court judge will give due regard. But he gives regard in such a way, as the tax court has made clear, and this is a decision for the tax court in interpreting its rules, does not impair or dilute the regular judge's responsibility to decide the matter. But he's he's not going to interview the witnesses. To give due regard to that individual's uh, ability to see the witnesses is to defer to that that individual's judgment. Nobody would read it in any other way. Well, with respect, Your Honor, the tax court has, and the Rosenbaum decision is a good example. There they went through and uh, overturned uh, findings of the special trial judge on credibility matters. Uh, now, they were reversed by the D.C. Circuit in the Stone case precisely because they said you didn't give enough deference. But the totally, which their rule requires, I'd reverse them too. Due regard means due regard. Absolutely, no. Absolutely not, Your Honor, because the tax court has not uh, acquiesced in the Stone decision. It, of course, is a national court, and it said the Stone court uh, got it wrong. We don't review this under a clearly erroneous standard. And they shortly thereafter changed their practice so that it is now purely internal and confirms the relationship between the regular tax court judge and the special trial. Well, Mr. Roberts, to get back to my question, which you never did answer, suppose it does mean it's reviewed under a clearly erroneous standard. Would that violate the authorizing statute, in your view? 
I think it might well, Your Honor, uh, in the sense that a clearly erroneous standard is closer. Uh, the, the statute requires that the regular tax court judge in this category of cases make the decision. Yes. And I think under a clearly erroneous standard, that may be abdicating too much of his statutory responsibility. Well, what if it's just a presumption? Well, if it's a presumption of the sort that it is here, as the tax court has, has told us, essentially that means that's where you start. Now let me see what the the evidence is, let me review the matter, then it's perfectly consistent with the statutory language. But I, I would like to point out that the case is, has evolved somewhat even today. If petitioner's objection was that Rule 183C was invalid, it seems a curious way to proceed uh, in, in, in raising that objection to raise an appointments clause problem. If a, a for example, by analogy, if a district court judge was allowing uh, his or her law clerk to do all the work and then just rubber stamping everything. I don't think our first reaction would be that that violates the appointments clause because the law clerk hasn't been appointed by the president confirmed by the Senate. No, we'd say that what the district court is doing is wrong. And the way you correct things that a district court does uh, that is wrong is you appeal. Now, the question is presented. Well, I take it there'd be some concern if there was a rule that the law clerk's draft is presumed correct. I mean, they might think so. But. <laughs> I recognize I'm as treading on sensitive grounds, but if the presumption, if 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 uh, if the if the presumption uh, is simply that this is a starting point, and now the judge, I'm going to look at everything, uh, I think that that would would still be fine. But the questions presented before this court do not say that Rule 183C of the Tax Court's rules is invalid. Um, uh, that's not uh, subsumed within within the uh, questions presented. Now, what a special trial tax court judge does, uh, apart from here submitting the report, uh, is, of course, conduct, uh, preside at the hearing. His duties in that respect uh, are in no instance greater than the duties of the special masters that this court regularly and routinely appoints uh, in cases. We know that those special masters are employees. They cannot be officers of the United States because Congress has not, by law, vested that appointment authority in this court. And therefore, by analogy, the special trial judge is also uh, an employee in the, when he performs those responsibilities. I'm trying to think, Mr. Roberts, uh, uh, not since I've been here anyway, but do, do, do we ever, when we have a special master here, an original case, and the parties don't agree with the disposition of the special master, do we ever uh, uh, adopt the, uh, uh, the decision of the special master without giving a hearing? Um, I, I don't know either way, Your Honor. I, I think the, you don't. Well, in this case, of course... The, before, before the court. Before the court. In this case, of course, the, the, the same power is available to a regular judge. He can call for oral argument. He can call for additional evidence, which is a, a feature that is plainly inconsistent with any clearly erroneous standard of review that I'm, of which I'm aware. That usually is restricted to the record before the reviewer. Here he can call for additional evidence if he needs more evidence. And he can just send it back and say... Uh, you know, uh, try again and, and, and start over. Um, now, the special trial judges have other duties that are not at issue in this case. Under B1 through 3, they may be authorized to decide the matter. Uh, but petitioners cannot rely on that statutory provision. They have not been injured by any assignment under B1 through 3. They have no standing uh, to object to that. The Buckley case, Buckley versus Vallejo, makes clear that in considering appointments clause challenges, 
you look to the particular uh, duties that are being challenged. In that case, the Court held that the Federal Elections Commission was improperly constituted under the Appointments Clause. But it also said that the FEC, as constituted, could continue to perform certain of its responsibilities, those that did not require an officer of the United States. So whether or not an officer of the United States is required under B-1 through 3 is not required under B-4, and that is the only uh, provision that is at issue in this case. Now, if the Court disagrees with us on the waiver point, and if the Court disagrees with us on the employee point, it will then be necessary to reach the constitutional issue. And our position is that the uh, Section 7443A-B-4 is not unconstitutional. May I back up just a second? You're saying because that they don't have standing to challenge the status of the officer because uh, even if duties under 1, 2, and 3 would have been uh, required, were performed by an officer of the United States, but if, if this uh, assistant trial judge is performing those duties, the appointment would be invalid, wouldn't it? Unless the, unless, I mean, the constitutional issue would be presented as this. I don't, I don't quite understand why you're saying they don't have standing to make that argument. Because uh, uh, the duties that are required, that require an officer of the United States, an officer of the United States can perform duties that do not require an officer, that may be performed by a mere employee. Um, and that is the case, certainly, we think, with respect to B-4. Oh, I see your, I see your saying. Does not require uh, uh, an officer, and therefore that he may do other things, which he did not do in this case, that require an officer. Don't give them standing to complain about those. If the Court does reach the constitutional question, and... Uh, I would urge the Court not to because there are available certainly the waiver point and the employee's point. And the constitutional question is a very sensitive one that goes to the core of our structure of government and would be a peculiarly inappropriate case for the Court to reach out and decide that issue. Uh, But if the Court does go ahead and do that, we believe that the appointment can be sustained because the Chief Judge of the Tax Court is the head of a department in the Executive Branch. Uh, In Buckley versus Vallejo, to cite the case again, the Court, referring to the Appointments Clause, said that the departments referred to are themselves in the executive branch or at least have some connection with that branch. As the Second Circuit recently held unanimously in the Samuels-Kramer case, the tax court fits within that definition. We know it's not in the legislative branch. We know that it's not an Article III court. Now, does the government take, now take the same position with respect to all these other courts that I referred to before? District of Columbia, territorial courts, all those are in the executive branch. Your Honor, each case has to be considered on on its merits. I think with respect to the territorial courts and the District of Columbia courts, there Congress is acting pursuant to its authority to establish local governments. So so the the clause may not apply directly. The claims court is a particularly unique uh, uh, entity because it may well be an adjunct of the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which has the authority to remove claims court judges. But tell me again why the, the, the different power of Congress is exercised in creating the District of Columbia courts and territorial courts, but why does that make the appointment clause issue any different? Well, because we don't, because Congress in those instances has the authority to establish a local government and a local government that need not comply with the tripartite separation of powers in the federal government, uh, those entities, it may be difficult to classify them as either. Well, you, you don't think that Congress could, or maybe you do, appoint a territorial governor? No. I think in that instance, the appoint, when the federal entity is doing the appointment, the appointments clause applies with full force. The question would be, could Congress authorize the territorial court uh, in a territory to then make an appointment? And I think there, because the territorial court may well be 
equivalent of a state court, a local entity, the appointments clause may not apply. But when it's the federal government itself making the appointment, it applies in full force. And no, uh, the Congress could not appoint uh, uh, territorial uh, officials. Um, but it, I don't understand your answer to Justice Kennedy. If the appointment clause doesn't apply, why couldn't Congress appoint the uh, governor of the territory? Well, I think it does apply in that instance because it would do violence to the, to the separation of powers that is at the base of the appointments clause. The question is sort of the uh, further on down the road is, is does the appointments clause apply to the appointing activities of the territorial entities? And because I think they may well be creatures that don't fit into the tripartite system because they partake of the local governing authority that the clause may not then, apply. Then Congress could appoint the staff of the governor and the staff of the court. No, uh, Congress could authorize the court to appoint its staff, even though we may have trouble saying that that's an executive department or a court of law. But I think when Congress is doing the appointing, it still must act consistent with the appointments clause. Well, are you resting on the appointments clause or just a concept of congressional power? Well, it's an, it's an interplay between the appointments clause and Congress's powers uh, with respect to the territories and the District of Columbia, which gives rise to creatures that are hard to fit into the terms of the Appointments Clause. Well, the now, Appointments Clause uh, gives some power to courts of law to make appointments. Do you think yeah, for the territorial courts they could have authorized this court to appoint the clerk of the territorial courts? We're certainly a court of law. I don't see any objection to that, no. Um, and I, I think they could have. Um, now, if the tax court is going to exist as a constitutional entity, uh, it must be in the executive branch because there are only three branches. Petitioners are correct. That is our view. And we know that it is not in the legislative branch and it is not an Article Three court. They say that it, there are reasons to doubt, were there words in their reply brief, that it's in the executive branch because it performs adjudicatory functions but it adjudicates public rights cases that Congress may leave within the executive under Murray's lessee, which was itself a, a tax case. Now, it's easy, of course, to visualize what the tax court does as being adjudicatory. It looks, acts like a court. But it's also quite simple, as is the case in, all, in every public rights case, to visualize what the tax court does as being purely executive. There are officials in the Internal Revenue Service who sit down and decide what a taxpayer owes the government. And the tax court, for its formality and, and separation, uh, is really another level of that. Which well, is it absolutely certain, and, and have, has, has this court ever decided that the term courts of law and the appointments clause is of necessity the same as an Article Three court? No, it is a, an issue of first impression before this court, as I understand. I think it's was correctly decided that way by the Second, Second Circuit recently. It says the courts of law. Uh, capital C, capital L, which strikes me as to naturally refer to the courts of law established under the Constitution. Now, petitioners, as we understand it, do not dispute that the tax court was in the executive branch prior to 1969. The question becomes, what happened in 1969 that made it any different? Congress took language that said this is an agency in the executive branch and substituted language saying this is a court of record under Article I. We agree with the Second Circuit's recent decision that what they did was change the label. They didn't purport in the statute to move the tax court outside the executive branch and didn't purport to put it in any other branch. The legislative history did say, uh, not the statute, the legislative history, we think um, uh, that the tax court 
should be considered an Article I court rather than an executive agency. To our way of looking at it, that's like saying something should be, should be considered an orange rather than a fruit. Uh, it's both. Uh, the, the Article I court, we're quite happy to call it that, but it remains in the, in the executive branch. And we think that's confirmed by the fact that in 1969, Congress continued the incumbent tax court judges in office. If Congress were doing something as dramatic as moving the tax court out of the executive branch and placing it somewhere else, it plainly would have no authority to continue those judges in office. That would be an appointment from one entity to another. But uh, it did not do that. It continued them, and quite properly so, because it was not moving it from one branch to another. What are the the consequences of saying it's still in the executive branch? Does that mean the Administrative Procedures Act applies and the Freedom of Information Act and so forth and so on? All the things Congress tried very hard to prevent. Well, they may or may not, Your Honor, and it depends on an evaluation of the, the statute in 69 and of the Administrative Procedures Act. Congress did not try very hard to prevent that because they didn't say anything about that in the statute. If they don't want the Administrative Procedures Act to apply, it's an either is an easy way to reach that result. The Administrative Procedure Act now defines an agency not to include courts of the United States. It would be a simple, maybe not simple, but a pure question of statutory interpretation whether that excluded Article I courts, and it may well. May I ask, how is the Chief Judge of this Court appointed? The Chief Judge is elected by the regular judges on and an is that a, is that a valid method of appointing a head of a department in the executive branch? Uh, no challenge has been raised. Well, I know no challenge has been raised, but under your argument, it is clearly invalid, is it not? Because the appointment was not made by the head of a department. Well, it would have to be considered uh, not only a separate office, but what the chief, the, the attributes of the chief judge that are different. Surely the chief judge is an officer of the United States. The chief judge is an officer of the United States. The question is, is the difference between the chief judge and a regular judge, does that require a Well, it, it gives him the authority to appoint uh, assistant trial judges. Yeah, yeah. Pretty important difference, I guess. Well, uh, uh, it, is a, it is a difference. It is not, as I say, it has not been uh, presented or, or briefed. But under your argument, it is clear that the uh, present appointment of the chief judge of the court is invalid, I think. No, well, uh, with respect, Your Honor, I'm not sure that that is clear. That, it's an issue that has not I know it hasn't been, been raised, raised, but I'm trying to think of the implications of accepting well, your argument. We would have to look at all the uh, added authority. Can you give me a reason why, consistent with your argument, the, the appointment could be valid? The appointment by his colleagues as chief judge? Well, one question would be is whether or not his additional authorities are such as require a separate appointment. I see. Um, and it may be, for example, that the head of a collegial body does not have to have a separate appointment, particularly here where the collegial body uh, acts together in electing them. He may be more in the nature of a, of a I don't know if it's a, a chairman or, 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 or... Not a head of a department with authority to appoint assistant trial judges. Well, he is clearly the head of this, of this department. There's no question about that. He became he head by collegial action that did not have to comply with the appointments clause. Well, it's a complicated question to answer, but perhaps, uh, uh, and I'm the question thinking, we entirely avoid if we assume it's a court of law. Uh, well, I, I suppose the question of the chief judge's uh, validity was avoided, uh, but not the question that's before this court today. It may be that with respect to uh, that the tax court as a whole can accept the appointment authority for their chief, uh, but that the chief judge, once appointed, can act as the head of a department. In other words, the tax court as a whole may be the head of the tax court 
for the purpose of selecting the chief judge. But the chief judge himself then is the head of the department for things that only he can do, such as appoint special trial judges. Thank, Thank you, Mr. Roberts. The case is submitted. This Supreme Court audio has been brought to you by a grant from the National Science Foundation to the OEA Project, www.oyez.org.